one of my uh, primary projects at Survey is NASA's Solar System Treks, which is a series of data visualization portals. One of the cool things about the Moon Trek portal is that it's just browser-based. You don't need to buy anything. You don't install anything. But one of the fun things that we're doing right now is I, I'm working with the amateur astronomy community. There is great utility in having a tool like this if you are planning your observations of the moon. Amateur astronomy is kind of unique amongst the sciences. You know, this is an area where amateurs regularly make really important contributions. Brian Day works at the Solar System Exploration Research Institute, and he is involved in creating some visualizations that many amateur astronomers can find very useful, not only in observing and imaging the moon, but also in taking measurements and actually exploring some of these bodies in our solar system. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Welcome, Brian Day, to our to our humble Space Junk podcast. Dustin couldn't make it today because he's off this week, so uh, it's just me and uh, me and Brian talking today. Brian is from NASA, and he's involved in various visualization aspects there that I want to uh, bring up, bring you guys up to speed on, and, and hopefully make some of these resources available to you guys. So, Brian, welcome, and. Uh, Thank you so much, Tony. I'm so glad you're here. So tell us a little bit about what you do at NASA. And uh, you work at something called SURVEY, which you were just telling me what that's about. It's called the Solar System Exploration Research Institute, something I didn't know NASA had, but I'm glad it does. And, yeah. <laughs> and you're also involved with a website called trek.nasa.gov, which we're going to be talking a lot about in this podcast. So uh, tell us what you do at NASA. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Tony. So, yes, I am... Uh, I'm Deputy Staff Scientist at NASA's Solar System Exploration Research Virtual Institute. Oh, Virtual Institute now. Way too long a game <laughs> name. Yeah, just, just way too long a name. So we call it NASA Survey. Uh, but what we actually do is we serve as a bridge between NASA's science and human exploration mission directorates. So our mantra is pretty much science that enables exploration and exploration that enables science. Boy, there aren't many bridges like that. I, you know, it's funny you talk about that because I worked at the Space Telescope Science Institute for a great many years, and it was funny because we worked primarily with the science directorate, right? People who run Hubble, people who run uh, uh, Kepler and, and the space telescopes. But that there's a pretty hard delineation between the science directorate, which does that, as well as JWST, the upcoming launch of that, and the human exploration part of it. Right? Right. And so it really is advantageous to get these two directorates within NASA working together and collaborating. And it turns out there are wonderful ways to do that. And so that's especially now as we are coming up with this new initiative for returning to the moon, uh, moving Artemis. ahead. That's right, yeah. Artemis, and also a number of precursor robotic landings that are starting just this year. So we have scheduled this year to be returning to the surface through the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, where we are essentially buying rides for NASA payloads on commercial landers that will ideally get us down to the surface of the moon this very year. Well, wow. So does that mean the landers are built and ready to go? This year is yeah. like now. So this is as in 2021. We have several companies that are now working with us. And right now, uh, a company called Intuitive Machines and a company called Astrobotics are both scheduled to 
deliver payloads to different areas on the moon. So uh, we're going to have intuitive. Oh my God, machines. I consider myself. I, I, I would just interrupt you and say I just I consider myself somebody who's in the loop, and I've never heard of this. So, so yeah, this is amazing. So they, uh, please continue. They're going to be they're going to be uh, yeah, so going this year. We're going and- to Oceanus Procellanum with intuitive machines, and we will be going to Locus Mortis with the Astrobotic Lander. And these are scheduled right now for November and December launches. Okay. All right. Aboard what uh, what launch system? So um, the launch vehicles, I, I just, I don't really recall right now. Uh, there's going to be a variety of these uh, upcoming launches uh, from these companies and from others. So over the next couple of years, and they'll be using a variety of launch vehicles too. Mm-hmm. Okay. So these two missions are going to be launching late this year uh, and landing on the surface. Uh, any idea what their science missions are? Yeah. So we're, we've got a range of uh, instruments that are going to be on each of these. We're going to be doing uh, surface science. And in addition, I should point out that uh, these missions will also be carrying, these landers will also be carrying payloads other than NASA's. So this is uh, kind of a interesting... Other countries or other companies? Even countries. So, for instance, on Locus Mortis, uh, the astrobotic flight to Locus Mortis, there will also be a series of lunar micro rovers from the Mexican Space Agency. These will be the first Latin American payloads to be delivered to the surface of the moon. So there's, and there will be, uh, there's a, let's see, I believe there's a rover from Carnegie Mellon that will be going along. And there are some commercial companies that are sending payloads. So it's, uh, it's a new way of going to the moon. That's this whole idea behind what we call CLIPS. CLPS, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services. And uh, so this is private companies providing access to the surface of the moon. And and it sounds like this is a precursor, precursor to the bigger missions like the Gateway and Cislunar Space exactly. and, and the Artemis mission. So we'll have, over the next few years, we'll have a number of these commercial landers landing on the moon carrying NASA payloads as well as other payloads, and they'll be going to a variety of locations. So, like I say, this year we're targeting Oceanus Procellarum and Locus Mortis, but then uh, we're looking to go other places such as Mare Crisium, Reiner Gamma, uh, the uh, Schrodinger Basin on the far side of the moon, and of course, we're also going to be sending some of these to the South Pole. Uh, South Pole is right now where we're targeting to have our human mission, the Artemis Three mission. That's right. Land. Yep. And uh, so uh, we're going to be having some precursors there, including Viper, which is going to be a rover that, well, that is cool. prospect for water ice. It's going to look at the actual distribution of water ice near the south pole of the moon wow uh, that's a cool name by the way projects i got to work on was uh, a mission you're probably familiar with the l cross mission mm-hmm. and that was a mission that launched along with lro uh back in 2009 and that was the mission where we actually discovered water ice on the moon. We had good evidence for it before. We had good hints. But this was when we actually excavated water ice. And it was done kind of a blunt force trauma approach to lunar exploration. <laughs> uh, I'll say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I shouldn't do it. Uh, yeah, Elcross <laughs> carried along with it the upper stage of uh, its Atlas V rocket so this upper stage sent our upper stage 
It had a mass of about two tons, about the size of a school bus, but moving at 5,600 miles an hour, considerably faster than your average school bus. And uh, after making a big sweeping cycle around the moon in what we call Elgaro, Lunar Gravity Assist Lunar Return Orbit, we were able to come in pretty much straight into the South Pole. Uh, the L-Cross spacecraft then turned and positioned that centaur upper stage so it was pointing right toward the South Pole, uh, toward a permanently shadowed crater, Cabeus, right near the South Pole, released that upper stage, it flew into that crater at 5,600 miles an hour, blasted tons of material up out of the shadows into the sunlight, and then our little spacecraft dove down into that cloud of debris, sniffed it and analyzed it, and that's how we fully ascertained that there was indeed water ice at the south pole of the moon. But what we want to do with Viper now is really see how that water ice is distributed. See how accessible it is. See how usable it's going to be to us as a resource. Because that's the yeah, whole idea. And that's important because you don't want to carry it. That's right. We're hoping to go back to the moon in a sustainable way. And to a large degree, that's going to mean living off the land, using the resources that are available there. Right. Yeah, that's one of the exciting things about the South re, South Polar Lunar Region. There is that the uh, there was ice seen existing even on the surface uh, in the shadows there. So it's probably a good place to start looking for water. So yeah, this is all called in situ resource utilization. We've talked about it before. You don't want to be you know it's like uh, imagine if you were on a on a wagon train across the West in the 1800s and you had to carry all the water you were ever going to drink on the journey. Uh, that would be a little bit impractical, right? So so you want to exactly. you want to be able to use the resources as you find them, uh, which is the idea of that. So that's great. Well, so we're going to the moon this year. I did not know that. I knew China had launched a, uh, a rover then um, and, and was looking around. I, the India is a, trying again, I think, later this year uh, with another uh, with another lander attempt with their Vikram lander. So that's that's going to be cool. Yeah, and. And of course, we've got uh, still uh, coming up here. We have Artemis One too, also, which is going is that going to happen though? Really? I mean, I know we're getting off topic here, but but I mean, I SLS. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry, but is that is that? Are, are we optimistic still? Very. Uh, so oh, okay. we just had a we had a very successful test uh, for SLS. Yeah, it uh, went really well. That's true. Very recently, and it went very yeah. well. Made. Made lots of noise and lots of steam and all the things that we wanted it to do, and so okay. now that's uh, uh, now everything's going to come together at the Cape. And one of the exciting things about the Artemis One mission is, of course, it's going to be putting the Orion vehicle into orbit around the Moon, and then it will return. Yeah. But also, it's going to be deploying a number of satellites, including satellites that will go into lunar orbit and provide us with critical data, uh, especially with regards to hydrogen and water ice distribution on the surface of the moon. So we're looking ahead to a lot of really interesting things happening on the moon very soon. Yeah, I am psyched about Artemis launching. I want to. I want to see the. Uh, I have very faint, vague memories of the Saturn V with Apollo seventeen, and I, 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 when I was a kid, I got to be present for that launch. And I, I can't wait uh, to see how this thing goes and and see that myself. So I'm there. I'm one of those guys with the lawn chair, weeks in advance, staking out my claim. So I'm excited. You and you and me both. We'll. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll... We'll yeah. say hi to each other there. Yeah, yeah. a big rocket yeah. like that, that's that's something we got to see. Exactly. Okay, well, let's get to Survey then. So Survey is this bridge, as you talked about, with uh, between the human exploration part of NASA and the science part of NASA, both of which are vitally uh, critical to what you know to everybody, really. And so um, what is that bridge look like? It looks like, from what I can tell, it's a virtual institute. So you presumably do things with data. 
and visualizations and things like that. So tell us, tell us about yeah. how that bridge works. So the way that Survey works is it has in its name virtual. So that means it isn't all in one place. It's actually pretty well distributed. We have funded research teams across the country that are doing a variety of different types of research. So for instance, at University of Colorado, we have the world's largest dust accelerator, slamming pieces of dust into various minerals and into ices because, well, that happens on the moon and in the solar system all the time. We have teams studying plasma. We have teams studying mineralogy. We have teams studying uh, the space weathering. We have teams studying the potential toxic effect of lunar dust. We have teams doing analog studies. So going to places here on Earth that in many ways have things in common to the surface of the moon, or in some cases, the surface of Mars, so that we can develop the technologies that we're going to need to use on these surfaces. So we have a variety of teams, research teams at universities and institutes, and even other NASA centers across the country. And one thing that really differentiates what Survey does behind, but versus say a typical NASA grant program, is that instead of just giving money to teams and say go forth and do that research, within Survey what has happened is these various teams are expected to collaborate, and so these very diverse areas come together in ways that perhaps they wouldn't have unless brought together under this umbrella. And so we get these new collaborations that come as a result from being in this umbrella. And then beyond that, we also then have international partners around the world. So different countries are participating and quite a few. And so that so being you know as we go to the moon and as we go beyond we're seeing more and more that this is going to be an international effort and so that is very much reflected if you come and visit us at Serbia, and i highly encourage it's once once we're traveling again i will be happy to invite you to come out to Serbia's uh headquarters at nasa ames research center in california and as you walk into the uh, lobby there, you see the flags of all the nations of uh, the international partnerships within Serbia. And so it is very reflective of the international effort that we are about to engage upon as we spread out across the solar system. Yeah, that's really, that's one of the, the, Really, that's one of the things NASA does really well is these international collaborations with all, everything they do, from from the, the human space program now to the International Space Station and JWST, all of it. Um, and I hear these stories all the time about science. You know, I guess by necessity, you know, science needs to dive deep and get specific and get you know put on blinders and study one specific thing. But the danger there is that you tend to not cross collaborate with other other fields of study and other uh, groups and things like that. It's very easy to get bogged down in your specific line of research, whether it's dust acceleration and moon particles, um, and only studying those things. It's good that NASA's got a vehicle that you can open up that collaboration and say, well, look, well, look at what these guys are doing. Because I can't tell you how many places I've worked where I've been in my office working on my thing, and I would have to learn about what my colleague down the hall was doing by going to a meeting and watching a talk, right? It's like, wow, that's you really working on that? That's really cool, right? So I get that science needs to be specific because it, you know, that's the the level of you know all the low hanging fruits gone. We have to dive deep into problems to solve them now. 
but that comes with a cost of collaboration. So I'm glad NASA's got this kind of vehicle to do that. And one thing that I'll point out is that you can watch this happen. You can see your tax dollars at work in this very way. Every year, Serbia has a conference, the Exploration Science Forum. And this year, this summer, it's going to be a virtual conference, as so many are. But if you go to survey.nasa.gov, that's S-S-E-R-V-I.nasa.gov, um, you'll be able to actually uh, see information about the upcoming Exploration Science Forum in July. And anyone is welcome to attend that. So I would strongly recommend that if you want to see how these different areas of research come together and collaborate and produce wonderful results that are really enabling us to do science and human exploration coming together in these upcoming missions. Uh, come join us for the Exploration Science Forum online conference this July. Excellent. I, I remember you guys did one. I think it was I mean, it was on Survey's website, whether you guys were hosting it, I don't know. But there was a workshop on Apophis uh, back in 2019, I believe it was, that I learned a lot from. Um, it was an amazing workshop. It was just, a, and they had, well, it was actually a, a PHA workshop, potentially hazardous astro asteroid, but they had a session on Apophis, and that's the one I watched. And it was really, really a lot of uh, good, good, cool information about that asteroid there, so. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. Uh, Survey definitely has a lot of interest in asteroids, um, so that is part of our wheelhouse too. And uh, we probably have to take note that uh, asteroids, especially near-Earth asteroids, have been very big in the news lately with two spectacularly successful missions. Uh, the our Japanese partners, of course, had the Hayabusa two mission to the asteroid Ryugu. And then NASA had the very spectacularly successful uh, mission, the OSIRIS-REx mission, to the asteroid Bennu. And so I we're loved watching that. That was so cool. That. Yeah, and yeah. that kind of it's getting ready to come to, back with uh, the, with its stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Bringing it, yeah, bringing bringing home the goods. This is really going to be exciting stuff, and these are. Apparently, very primitive asteroids, uh, a lot of uh, con carbonaceous chondritic material. This is going to be something we learn a lot from. Um, but I'd like to talk, too, about, again, one of my uh, primary projects at Survey is NASA's Solar System Trex, which is a series of data visualization portals that essentially gather information from many, many different instruments aboard many different spacecraft in a variety of locations across the solar system and allow us to essentially view the surfaces of these worlds seen through the eyes of these various instruments. We use these portals in a number of different ways. So the portals uh, we started out with our lunar portal is how we began, and that was way back during the Constellation program, which you remember was uh, the program for going to the moon before Artemis. And you know, a lot of a lot of good stuff came from Constellation, including, quite frankly, uh, this lunar data visualization portal. Back then, it was called the Lunar Mapping and Modeling Portal, or LMMP. But it has essentially grown and progressed and become the Moon Trek portal, which we use for doing lunar science, for doing mission planning, and also for doing education and outreach. And so, one of the cool things about the Moon Trek portal is that it's just browser based. You don't need to buy anything, you don't install anything. Just point your preferably Chrome browser to trek, that's T-R-E-K dot NASA dot gov. Um, and, and, it's, and it's really amazing. Oh, I'm glad to hear you say that. 
Yeah. Well, uh, you know what it reminds me of? It, rem- it reminds me of another really cool thing that NASA does, which is the Eyes on the Solar System app. That's an app that you can get. I don't know if you're involved in that or, or know or if, if Survey is, but that's a, that's a free app that you could download that gives you all kinds of really great information about all the NASA missions, the space telescopes, and you can explore places. Uh, but that's more from a mission perspective. This is more from a... Uh, location perspective within the solar system you can see things like you have you have treks for various parts for planets like mars and mercury to moons um you can see uh the moon and titan is on it and a variety of asteroids and things like that so it's really it reminds me a lot of eyes on the solar system i guess is what i'm saying well i'm I'm glad to hear you say that and yes it does and quite frankly um our servers through our back-end process actually serve data too solar system so, okay yes we 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 definitely work together very very closely yeah i use that one all the time if i want to know like you know where is uh test for example uh you know or where is uh voyager one and two there's these nice graphical mm-hmm. uh layouts that you can do and of course you can go to any of the planets in the solar system as well it's a beautiful app so that's eyes.nasa.gov yeah. i think and then there's trek.nasa.gov so so this is yes, really neat and, but some of the fun features with, uh, say, going, we'll talk about Moon Trek for an example here, though a lot of these features translate across the portals. But uh, especially now as we've got these missions coming up, if you want to go explore in advance, say, the Locus Mortis landing site, you can do that. And you can do that. You can pan and zoom down to the location. There are tools that allow you to measure the size of features. You can do elevation profiles, measuring the heights of mountains, the depths of craters. You can draw a bounding box around any portion of the terrain you want. And the portal will return to you either an STL or OBJ file for your 3D printer. So you can make 3D prints of any terrain that you want on the surface of the moon. Similarly, you can explore the surface through switching into what we call the 3D globe view. And in that mode, you take advantage of your standard keyboard game control and can interactively fly across the surface of the moon, down into craters, up over mountains. It's really, a lot of fun. And there's another feature that allows you to draw a path with your mouse anywhere across the surface. The portal will then return to you a QR code. You scan that QR code into your smartphone and then you just snap your smartphone into a pair of cheap, you know, $5 cardboard compatible goggles. And whatever path you drew, you will now fly in virtual reality. So you can create your own virtual reality experiences. Real data. And this is real data, right? This is stuff that, that like I'm looking at the Moon Trek one right now, and I'm scrolling around through here. Is this LRO data or LRO images there as is, I get closer? And closer? There, so if you go, if you look in the upper left-hand corner, there is a button that allows you to pull up a menu. There are thousands of data layers. So I yes, see. we have data from LRO. We have data from Kaguya. We have data from the Apollo missions. We have data from the uh, Chang'e 2, Chinese orbiter. We have uh, Lunar Prospector. We have Clementine. We have tons of data. We have... Um, of course, Grail, gravity data. It just goes on and on and on. There are thousands of layers of data for you to work with. And so what you This is do, incredible. Yeah, it's fun. But even more so is you can select data layers and essentially build a data stack. Think of a think of a deck of cards. So you can for a given these these data layers are geo-referenced and co-registered so that they will lie on top of each other just just right. And then you can select various data products. 
You can change their order within the stack. You can adjust transparency so that you can actually blend different data products together. That's where some of the real power comes because now you can see things that no one single data product can show you. You can actually blend different data products together and see things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. So for instance, one of the fun things I like to do is, for instance, go to the Marius Hills, a wonderful volcanic complex on the moon. Now, if you just look at it from the LROC camera perspective, our WAC mosaic view, it doesn't look like much because the volcanoes on the moon tend to be very subtle features. Uh, they're no, not big, tall, towering cones. Uh, they tend to be very low slope shields for the most part. That's because lava on the moon, when it erupted, had very low silica content, and therefore it had very low viscosity. For the most part, it was kind of like olive oil at room temperature, and it's hard to build a mountain out of that. But uh, if you look at the Marius Hills and you switch to a laser altimetry view, those cones and shields pop out dramatically. And then you can go ahead and overlay a free air gravity map, and you can see uh, the change in gravity over the area. And then you can adjust the transparency so that you can actually see the surface manifestation of the volcanic area. But then you can also, through gravity mapping, visualize the now solidified, unerupted plug of magma beneath the complex. You can see all that at the same time. And it's, it's pretty amazing. Now, once you've blended things together like that, there's a good chance you might want to save it or even share it with your friends or colleagues. And there's a button that allows you to do that because this is all, you are all browser-based. You click that button, it generates a URL. You just copy that URL, send it in an email or whatever to your friends. They just paste that URL into their browser. It'll bring up Moontrek, pan and zoom to your location, load all your different layers, make the adjustments and recreate your own data visualization for them. Yeah, and I'm as you were talking, I'm just playing around with it. And you know what's what what's real striking about the moon, especially I was just doing the moon trek there, is that when you you look at the global maps or you look at it some like on a sphere view, and then you then you start to zoom in on this data, it gets fuzzy at first. But then as your browser as as it gets the data, suddenly these really high definition <laughs> images of the landscape of the moon come into place. It's striking how clear it yeah. is. It's amazing looking. So definitely go and play with this. And there are tutorials there that help you kind of what do all the things that uh, what Brian was just talking about. So if you go to trek.nasa.gov and you play around, watch the, the tutorials and, uh, and, and just, I, mean, I guarantee you, you'll lose an hour without even thinking about it, just playing around with this stuff. So it's really cool. But one of the fun things that we're doing right now is I, working with the amateur astronomy community. Um, there is great utility in having a tool like this if you are planning your observations of the moon. And uh, there is a wonderful group, uh, the Amateur Astronomy Solenology Project that uh, is out there. Uh, Gary Varney, who works at OPT, actually is one of the leaders of this online group. And these are, these are some of the most amazing lunar imagers out there. These guys, you know, produce images that are quite oftentimes mistaken, even by experts, for being LRO images of the moon. Uh, they do <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> work. Yeah. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress here and tell a fun little story. At, uh, a couple of years ago, at one of the Exploration Science Forums, we actually had Gary Barney there, and we kicked it off, kicked the conference off with a movie that he did of some of his incredible lunar imagery done with an 11-inch 11, 11 telescope in his backyard. 
and this is playing and it's just messaging people. And one of our European principal investigators sitting next to me, a guy who knows the moon intimately, turns and says, where did you get this LRO imagery? I'm not familiar with it. And I was very happy to tell him <laughs> this was not from LRO. It was from that guy sitting over there. And uh, it made a huge impression. But uh, wow, that's because really of the fact that now with this, with the types of cameras that are available to the amateurs and the techniques, the processing that you can do, the, the wavelet processing and the, you know, being able to take advantage of stacking and finding those instances of really good seeing and putting together an incredibly sharp image. You know, that's all available now to the amateur imager, the amateur lunar explorer, and you can do incredible work. And so one of the things that I've had a lot of fun with lately is engaging this community with Moontrack and saying, look, here are some areas we're interested to, in going to. Say the Aina caldera, tiny caldera on the surface of the moon. It's like six kilometers across a volcanic caldera that at least seems to be really, really young, perhaps only less than 100 million years old, which for the moon is ridiculously young for a volcanic feature. We're not really sure how a volcanic feature could actually be that young on the moon. And so that's an area we're interested in. Another place is a place called Horseshoe Crater in Mare Crisium, a, uh, a cinder cone kind of a breached cinder cone. One end of it, one side of it is breached, is low. And so the whole cone takes a horseshoe shape. And this is one of the areas that we are looking to target with perhaps one of the upcoming CLIPS missions, uh, 2023, I believe, a company called Firefly uh, Aerospace will be flying a commercial lander. And again, we're trying to have NASA payloads on board, and uh, this will go to Mare Crisium. And one of the sites very much in consideration is this horseshoe crater. Um, it's only something like five kilometers across, very low profile, and it's this. it doesn't have any difference in shading to the Mare surface around it. So it's really a challenging object. But I showed this to Gary and the folks in the group uh, using Moontrack, and I said, let's see if amateurs can actually image it. And sure enough, they did. And it's really, really spectacular. And you mentioned earlier that, that, that there's processing that's available to the amateur now that uh, you mentioned wavelet processing in particular. Is there anything that you guys at NASA provide uh, for this kind of processing, or is it just something that is, exists, say, in some of the processing software that's already out there, PixInsight, so, whatever it happens to be? I, I mean, we certainly use all kinds of advanced image processing, but um, the type of processing that is available to the amateur community right now. Uh, and a lot of it is freeware. So the software that you can use to stack the images to. Okay. Uh, but you're not talking about, okay. So you're talking about stuff that's already out in the community, not something yeah. that NASA makes available. This is stuff that people can do already. This is stuff that I is see. freely available out there that people are using. I'd, I'd recommend, you know, you get Gary on, have him give a demo or something. Uh, sure. Quite frankly, I'm, I'm learning the art from him right now. And I'm having <laughs> yeah, he's that good. Huh? Yeah, we should definitely get him on the podcast and talk about that then. So, so uh, well, I guess I'm thinking as you were talking about this, what is, you already have high definition pictures or images and maps and, and topography, all of this stuff of, say, the horseshoe 
creator that feature that you were talking about. Why do you need more of the same thing? Is it is, is it going to change all that much? What what do what do oh. amateurs bring to the party that isn't already there with NASA data sets? Oh, Tony, thank you so much for asking. That. That is- <laughs> You're welcome. So, um, yeah, amateur astronomy is kind of unique amongst the sciences. You know, this is an area where amateurs regularly make really important contributions. So many discoveries in astronomy are made by amateurs. And you can't say that about nuclear physics. You can't say that about quantum physics, about organic chemistry. Very, very little is done by amateurs in those areas. But in astronomy, amateurs still play a huge role. And that is very much the case even with the moon. One of the things that we've become aware of is the moon is indeed a dynamic environment, and it does change. The moon receives meteorite impacts all the time. And the moon doesn't have the thick blanket of atmosphere that the Earth does to protect its surface. You don't have the meteorites burning up in a lunar atmosphere. They just slam into the surface. And one of the really exciting things being done right now is a coordinated network of observations of the lunar surface, again, using these cameras available to the amateurs to actually record impact flashes as meteoroids slam into the surface of the moon. And we see a number of these impacts a month. I mean, it isn't a really unusual thing. And so there's a group out of the uh, ALPO, ALPO, the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Within that, there is a subgroup that is actually targeting lunar meteoroid impacts. It's uh, led by a gentleman named Brian Kudnick. And he's even written a beautiful book on the subject. So if you want to learn how to get your backyard telescope, you know, people with eight inch telescopes and these wonderful electronic planetary cameras now are making these discoveries of impacts. And so we actually do see changes on the lunar surface. We are seeing new craters form. Uh, So that's one area significant interest and that's an area where amateurs are making great contributions an example was back during the laddie mission the lunar atmosphere and dust environment explorer mission um just as a reminder for your audience that was a mission that was specifically designed to study the lunar atmosphere now when i went to school i learned the moon didn't have an atmosphere. But as a matter of fact, the moon does have an atmosphere. It has a very thin atmosphere, something we call a surface boundary exosphere. It's a collisionless atmosphere where uh, here on Earth, molecules in our atmosphere, their motions are dominated by collisions. But on the moon, the atmosphere is rarefied enough that the motions of molecules are essentially ballistic. They're just energized by either electromagnetic or mechanical energy hitting the surface. And you have energized molecules arcing up in ballistic paths, just affected by their kinetic energy and the gravity of the moon. But one of the things we're also aware of is that the moon can be, is a very dusty environment. And there were some observations by surveyor and by Apollo missions indicating that dust may actually be lofted up into the lunar atmosphere. And so the LADEE mission, the Lunar Atmosphere and Dust Environment Explorer, went into orbit around the moon and then dropped down low into the lunar atmosphere to measure the dust content, measure the structure, composition, and variability of the lunar atmosphere looking at all those things change over time. And 
one of the things that happened during that mission is we specifically worked with the amateur astronomy community to monitor the moon for impacts during the course of the mission to see how the atmosphere of the moon actually reacted to impacts on the lunar surface. And one of the things that we see is, in fact, that there are changes in the lunar atmosphere that actually coincide with meteor showers. So some of our known meteor showers that we are familiar with end up having a real effect on the moon. These, Like the Orionids, the Leonids, all those ones that we're, yeah, that we're very so, familiar yep. with. Uh-huh. Okay. And so... Uh, and yeah, so these are really neat things. And so, and one of the things we're also looking to do that will be able to involve the amateurs is uh, what we're looking to do is expand Moon Trek so that we can get a history of lunar imaging and be able to compare them in a very almost Think of astronomy, the blink comparators that are used to look for yeah, Nova. I remember those. Yep. Yeah. So being able to blink from, say, old lunar orbiter imagery taken before the Apollo missions and then compare that with current LRO imagery. And people could then go across the surface of the moon and look for changes, see things that have happened in those intervening decades, look for fresh features, be they natural from impacts from outside the moon, from natural sources, or perhaps anthropogenic. We, you know, look, find an S4B, you know, Saturn S4B impact site on the moon. <laughs> or perhaps look, right. at, at, at you laugh, but actually amateurs have done that. Well, we already did it with uh, with we already talked about smashing things on the moon. So we did that with the, right. Uh, but uh, in some cases, for instance, we had upper stages of Saturn rockets that ended up crashing into the moon, but nobody really knew where. And oh, really? Okay. Some in some cases, amateurs, a guy I know named Rick Baldrich uh, has actually was able to track down, and you see the impact scar from where this thing slammed into the moon. And so um, also looking for endogenous changes to the moon. Uh, the moon is an active body. You know, we don't think of that. Again, when I went to school long ago, I learned that the moon was pretty much geologically dead. Yeah. But we now know that the moon is actually an active place. It has moonquakes. These moonquakes get up to magnitude 5.5 and can last for over 10 minutes. Let me assure you right here and now, if you're in a magnitude 5.5 earthquake that's lasting for 10 minutes, you'll quickly conclude that the object you're sitting on is not geologically dead. And so these are <laughs> that's very we'll true. want to take into consideration as we start living and working on the moon. This is an active place. And so... Um, the again, this is something Survey is very much involved in is looking at lunar geophysics, and that's that's a really interesting thing. That's an active thing, and we have teams within Survey that are now working on uh seismic hazard analyses across the surface of the moon. Cool stuff. Well, I yeah, so that you know, as you were talking about the uh, the the things you were taught in early on, it's you know, I'm old enough to remember in my education. One of the things that has stood out to me uh, in in this present day state of knowledge that we have about the universe is just how dynamic the universe actually is. And we were taught, as I was taught growing up, as you were that these things just never changed. The moon was always the moon. It was always going to be the same. Um, and now, now we're getting pictures of the, and Einstein, I think was one of the proponents of a steady state theory of the universe where the universe just was always the way it was infinitely old and will stay infinitely, uh, the same way. Um, but now we know we actually have, not only do we have pictures of features changing on the moon, but we have 
movies of Ada Carina, a supernova, actually expanding, right? So the universe we've come to know as static is not at all static. And that's probably one of the biggest amazements to me as I've grown older is just how dynamic everything in the universe has become. Uh, yeah. And so, and, and going to the moon is going to emphasize that for us because one of the things we're also looking at, and again, Survey is very much involved in, is uh, we've got a, a Survey team that is very much leading the charge and using the far side of the moon as a radio observatory. Right. That's to right. To look back into the what we call the cosmic dark ages and be able to see when stars first turned on and this is something that you can't do from many places in the solar system we human beings are really annoyingly noisy and one of the and getting noisier radio, yeah but one of the true radio quiet places you can find one of the very few is the far side of the moon it's always pointed away from the earth and you've always got miles and miles you know, sh shielding rock between you and the Earth. And so this is a place where you could establish a radio observatory that would be able to peer back into those very, very, very early days of the universe in a way that we can't do anywhere else. Does NASA have a time scale for that observatory? Or is it just in the early planning stages? Uh, no, so there is nothing firmly established. I know that uh, the team Jack Burns has uh, put together timelines of how it how it can be done, you know, technologically. Uh, but the actual, we don't have a commitment yet for when that is going to be built. But that is something that is being actively investigated right now. Yeah, I think it's it's hugely important because you say because it's one of the few radio quiet places, and it works coming at an era of, you know, these constellations of satellites that I would be very interested to learn how noisy they are in the radio spectrum. We know that you know, studies have been done on the Starlink satellites and for the Kuiper Belt, the Kuiper satellites, and all these ones that are being launched to give us internet from space. ESO, NASA, the American Astronomical Society, all of these people have done studies that show that basically the danger area is from dusk to dawn at the infrared or at the visible wavelengths from these satellites. But I don't I haven't heard one on radio yet. And I would love to know what Alma thinks about all of these satellites that are going to be launched um, uh, I, uh, up there. And so the moon, if we would would be a pre would would obviate a lot of that. Of course, it'd make Alma useless if, if the sky becomes opaque at radio wavelengths because of Starlink. But, you know, it's still, um, it's still, I think, an important venture to go. And I'm glad to see NASA's taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, the moon in a lot of ways is a really unique resource. And in addition, the moon is able to tell us things about the Earth that, we might not be able to otherwise learn because of the formation uh, of the, of the moon of the way it was believed to have been from an impactor. Yeah. That kind that's of thing. Part of it. Um, so for instance, you know, here on, uh, you know, here on earth, we, well, I like to, you know, when I go into classrooms, I like to explain to kids that, you know, okay, I, I'm an astronomer by training, but astronomers are not the only, kinds of scientists at NASA were just the best looking scientists at NASA. <laughs> oh my God. You don't tell. There, oh, there are many other types of scientists. Yeah. These poor children. Okay. <laughs> but there are, yeah. But I, I explained to them that, you know, they're also geologists. And if you're a geologist, you learn to be able to hear the stories that rocks have to tell. Rocks tell us stories of how they formed, where they formed, when they formed, and the conditions under which they formed. And so rocks are really wonderful. It's a great skill if you learn to be able to hear these stories that rocks tell us. Now, here on Earth, we would love to be able to find rocks from the very first days of the Earth and really learn the story of those earliest days of the Earth. But unfortunately, we can't because here on Earth, we have wind and rain, erosion that turn rocks to dust, and we have plate tectonics that resurface yes across the earth and so 
if you want to find those really, really, really old rocks, you're pretty much out of luck here on Earth. But the moon, which we now have pretty good evidence, formed with the Earth in a giant collision about 4.6 billion years ago. Um, on the moon, we don't have wind and rain, we don't have plate tectonics, and we do have access to rocks that are far older than what we can find here on Earth. And so paradoxically, you know, if you want to learn about the earliest days of the Earth, one of the best places to go is the moon. But the story yeah, potentially is even better than that. So back on Apollo 14, as the astronauts made their way up toward the edge of Cone Crater, um, Alan Shepard looked down and he saw a rock, fairly large, it was about the size and shape of a football. And uh, they got the name Big Bertha. Big Bertha got brought back. Uh, Alan looked at that and he said, I like that rock, it's coming back with us. And to be a, um, it turns out to be an impact breccia, a type of rock that is actually numerous different rocks that have been fused together by the heat and energy of meteorite impacts on the moon. And recently, researchers were looking at Big Bertha in detail, and they were looking at one of the clasts, one of the included rocks within that bigger rock and it was standing out it was just looking different than the others from a mineralogical standpoint from the oxidation environment in which it formed it just didn't look the same and so they started really listening to the story that that class had to tell and the story that it seems to be telling us is that this may not be a moon rock at all. In fact, it may was be an rock that is about 4 to 4.1 billion years old. Then could have formed about 12 miles down beneath the Earth's crust. Now, back then, the Earth was a very violent place. There were asteroids slamming through the solar system and blasting the earth and what we think may have happened is this rock got blasted off the earth by a large asteroid impact flew out into space and landed on the surface of the moon but it apparently didn't get to rest very long because 3.8 billion years ago Another asteroid slammed into the moon, formed the Imbrium impact basin. And from the standpoint of this little rock, it would have seen this big glowing tsunami of ejecta coming over the northern horizon and burying it and fusing it to the local moon rock beneath. And there it should have remained buried for all rest of time, except for 26 million years ago, another asteroid, smaller one, came slammed into the ground, created cone crater, dug this rock back up, and left it lying on the surface for Alan Shepard to come along, pick it up, and bring it back to Earth. And so, it just might be, it's just possible, we're still looking at this rock in great detail, trying to understand its stories, but it just may be that the oldest Earth rock that we have to examine may have been kept and preserved for us on the moon. That's cool. <laughs> awesome. That's very cool. All right. Well, I think we'll, I think that's a good spot to end our podcast. Uh, Brian day. I want to thank you so much for taking time out uh, to tell us what you do at NASA. Uh, Brian day works at the, uh, at survey, uh, the, which stands for national, the solar system exploration research Institute. And he's lately gotten involved in the 
a visualization project called NASA Treks, and it's trek.nasa.gov. Got to go check this website out. Lots of cool things to do there. You will spend a lot of time on this website, I promise you. And uh, he's also an amateur astronomer. We didn't get a chance to talk much about the amateur astronomy part of the stuff you do, but you did give us a good insight into things that, that, that astronomers can do with NASA to help with our efforts to go to the moon. So that was really good. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. And if I can, I'd just like to give a shout out to, to the brilliant team of engineers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory that have put this NASA Solar System Treks uh, portals together. They are wonderful group of people to work with, and they are constantly blowing me away with the innovations that they come up with here. Agreed. I've, I'm always in awe of the guys at JPL and what they get done. So I, that's that's definitely a shared uh, shared sentiment. All right. Well, th- uh, thank you very much for joining us, Brian Day. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, who will be joining us next week, uh, I'm Tony Darnell. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.